Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with my podcast partner, Tina Spring. And today we have a special guest, Natalie Toyce, who is a dermatological vet. Her technical um, title is she is a board-certified veterinary dermatologist, which is a mouthful. But she's certainly important if your dog has skin issues. She works at MedVet here in Worthington, Ohio, which is a specialty hospital that uh, specializes in specialty things such as cancer treatment, rehab, orthopedics, dermatology, intern problems. I know that. They have an ophthalmologist on board, is my understanding, and um, emergency hospital. So welcome, Natalie. We're very excited to have you here on Your Family Dog. Thank you very much. All right. So Tina. I believe you get the opening question. Okay, so um, Dr. Toys, I want to start with if you could help explain to our listeners um, what a veterinary specialist is. Yes, that's actually a good question because I have had clients come to see me with their pet and not realize that veterinary specialists existed um, before they had to be referred um, or came to see us. So veterinary specialists are veterinarians who went to veterinary school, but then they elected to specialize in a certain area, for me, dermatology, but as Julie sort of outlined, there are many different areas of specialty. And so we underwent additional advanced training in that specialty um, through a training program typically called a residency. And then we typically have to take an examination in our area of specialty in order to be allowed to refer to ourselves as a board certified veterinary specialist. Um, So there are many of them. Our goal is to act as an extension um, of your family's veterinarian, Um, sort of if you had your primary care physician and then you had to go see a cardiologist. Your cardiologist isn't going to take over other parts of your care. They're just going to help with the cardiology part. So that's any specialist goal is to um, work as a team. Excellent. So one of the things that Julie and I were scuttlebutting about before we started the call was whether we're crazy curious, whether there is a difference in dermatology cases, mixed breed dog versus purebred dog. So we'll just start out by making everyone mad at everyone else. (laughs) And and my next question will be boys versus girls, big versus little, like we're going to We're going to make everyone equally angry, but I'm curious, like, is there a difference between purebred and mixed breed? And, you know, the, I I know we've all heard about, you know, mixed breed vigor. Um, I have not seen that in my practice, but okay. I'm asking if we see it in dermatology. Correct. That's actually a great question. And I would say that no, not necessarily. I do not see more purebred dogs in my practice than I do mixed breed dogs. Um, If you look at information either um, from veterinary pet insurance companies or maybe a big group of veterinary hospitals like Banfield because they have so many hospitals, so they have so many numbers. When you look at reasons that a dog may go to a veterinarian's office, not for a wellness or a healthy visit, Um, that number one reason is a dermatology-related condition. Um, Cats also, but a little lower down on the list. It's not the top reason. Um, So, but it's a very common reason. So, and I see all sorts of mixed-breed dogs in my practice. 
to talk about purebred dogs, there may be certain conditions that we see a lot more in a certain breed of dog. Um, I can think of a good example to me is a, a glandular condition called sebaceous adenitis. Um, it's a skin condition and um, standard poodles um, are a breed that we see it in commonly. Now, not every standard poodle has the condition, but if you said to me, I'm seeing this dog with sebaceous adenitis, I would also in my head automatically picture a standard poodle. What is um, sebaceous adenitis? Adenitis. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a lot of technical jargon. What it means, sebaceous adenitis, so sebaceous glands are the oil glands in the dog's skin that produce oil. Right. And so sebaceous adenitis means inflammation of the oil glands in ah. the skin. Okay. Um, and in that disease condition, what's happening is that the dog's body, for some reason, we don't know why, but has decided to attack its own oil glands. It doesn't affect other parts of the body or other internal organs, um, but it can lead to changes in the condition of the skin, the hair, um, the texture of the skin. There can be hair loss. Sometimes it's itchy and uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not. But the reason that one popped into my head is because there has been some... Um, genetic investigation. And so we know that that disease has a hereditary component. Um, there are other diseases where we suspect it in dogs, but we don't have hard scientific evidence. So would you see poodle mixes such as the, the golden doodles and the cockapoodle doodles and the beagle oodles <laughs> and all those oodle dogs? Do they, are they also prone towards this or is it just in purebred poodles? No, it can be in mixed breed dogs. And I have seen the condition sebaceous adenitis in dogs that are not poodles in, in okay. an assortment of dogs. So it doesn't mean it has to only be poodles. Um, with a lot of things, just like in human medicine and veterinary medicine, it's usually not a simple, oh, there's one gene or one problem that right. causes this. Right. Usually it's a mixture of things. Um, okay. So we have tendencies. All right. So are there dermatological um, situations that occur, not just like, okay, we have this in this line of dogs, but, but with things that, that it follows like with color with like, I know, cause my parents bred Doberman for, for many, many years, blue Doberman alopecia, right? We, yeah. we have a genetic dilute and that creates a whole bunch of fallout. So is that true in other colors and color combinations or coat lengths or things like that? Um, it's definitely true with certain colors, but specific to what are described as um, dilute colors. Um, so Dobermans are a classic example because uh, um, I'm going to get the terminology right, but a, a blue and tan Doberman is, you know, blue is the dilution of the black color. Um, so it's actually a genetic mutation when Dobermans or whatever animal is bred for that dilute color, you're actually breeding for the genetic mutation, and then it may manifest as significant skin problems. Um, so there are other breeds that have dilute colors. Um, Great Danes can be bred for dilute colors, um, and many other breeds, some of which I can't think of right now. Oh, well, I, to me, I think of the Golden Retriever, who used to, when I was growing up, was really an amber color. And now you see these blonde retrievers, yeah. which is the same kind yeah. of thing. And I don't think what most people realize is that when you breed for one specific trait, there are going to have unintended consequences to breeding for a specific trait. And it can come out in a variety of formats. It can come out as... Um, 
you know, skin problems. It could come out as um, eye problems. It can also come out behaviorally that the more you dilute something, the more you are more likely to have um, behavior problems or others because genes are expressed in different ways in the body. And so you start messing with one particular trait, there are going to be unintended consequences to that particular breeding trait. Yes. And and line breeding too, right? Like when breeders do line breeding, you're going to get more of whatever's there. The really magnificent, awesome stuff and the stuff that's not so great. So um, it's why when we get a breed that like a specific sire is way too popular, it becomes really dicey really quickly. Um, I often think of Manhattan in the German Shepherd world, right? Like for a while there, it was almost impossible to buy a German Shepherd that didn't have Manhattan DNA somewhere in their lineage. And Manhattan was fantastic, like what a great dog. But but there's going to be that genetic fallout of like, okay, whatever's there, like you're if if there had been a problem with that dog that didn't manifest until he was older, right? Like nobody would have known. And, you know, a, a large percentage of German Shepherd dogs in the United States had that genetic partially that genetic profile. Right. And that's a good point, Tina, because a lot of dermatologic conditions that we see, especially allergies are the most common condition I see in my dermatology practice, they don't manifest when they're young. So they usually don't show their signs and symptoms till they're of breeding age or have already been bred if they're a purebred dog that's going to be bred. Um, And we don't have ways right now to do any sort of screening test before the disease develops Uh when we talk about allergy. Um, You know, certain conditions, I think of classically of hip dysplasia, where they attempt to do screening Mm -hmm. tests, or PRA is an eye condition, um, where there's a screening test now that I think, this is not my area of expertise, um, but we don't have those um, for allergies to figure, you know, if this group of golden retrievers, because that's a breed that we see commonly with allergies, if they're, you know, if I have this litter, who's going to be the best one to be the next breeding sire. I can't predict that. And so you either have to wait for X number of years to see what happens before they're bred um, or keep track of all the offspring that are coming from those breedings. Right. And that's what a good breeder does. I know with my flat coat breeder, um, she has all of her dogs at the age of two, you have to do eyes, ears, or not ears, but eyes, hips, Mm -hmm. knees, um, thyroid, yeah, um, all these things. And she keeps track of all of these records of every single one of her puppies so that she understands when I did this cross, these are the problems that I had or these are the problem or we didn't have these problems. And mm-hmm. um, because the flat coat world is fairly small genetically, it's really important to keep track of those things so that you try to balance this out. And she's always looking. She's importing semen um, from all over the world to try and add more vigor to the flat coat line. So I think it's really important that when the tests you can do in, in purebreds is, is to do them. And, you know, eventually we may be able to find some sort of genetic marker for allergies. And certainly that would be something that would be um, useful. So what are the, um, if you wanted to have pet owners know something, or what is it that you wish more pet owners knew? about veterinary dermatology? Honestly, I think one of the first things is that in the general pet owner population, sometimes they don't realize that veterinary dermatologists exist 
as a specialty. So mm-hmm. I've introduced myself to people who own pets, who own dogs, and say, oh, I didn't know that there were dermatologists for dogs. Right. Um, so we're a smaller group of specialists, but we exist. Um, as a pet owner, what you should know, what I think you should know about your dog's hair and skin and, and coat and dermatology is that it's the biggest organ of the dog's body, just like in humans. The skin is the biggest organ in dogs. Um, and it does a lot of different functions. Um, obviously it lends itself to the cosmetic appearance. And when dogs were more of a wild animal, it provided camouflage or, you know, signaling between, um, individuals, but it also is important for, um, general protection from the elements. You know, dogs don't get sunburned the way that humans do typically, um, if they're, you know, exposing their belly and they live in a climate or an area where sun exposure is much more of a risk than that, you know, there's, there's areas I'm in the Midwest United States, so we don't have very much sun exposure generally. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I will guarantee, especially um, in these winter months where everything is basically the same uniform gray. Yeah. 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 So it's a good thing for my, you know, my patients that may have less hair to protect their skin. They're not going to be as prone to sunburn as if they live high altitude in Colorado or Southern hemisphere. Um, But the skin does a lot of stuff for their, for their pet. And some things that they see happening abnormal may be a skin. Sorry, my puppy's in the background playing with the toy, Um, a skin directly problem, or maybe a sign of something happening inside the body. Right. Um, a common, not necessarily dangerous one I think of is um, an abnormal thyroid hormone. So if a dog has a low right. thyroid, um, that's an internal problem. You know, we need to run a blood test or do things to look for that problem. But the first manifestation may be changes in the hair. It may not grow back as fast. It may be thinner. It may be a poor quality. There might be a lot more dandruff. Um, and so that is what we doctors essentially in a, in a more um, technical way say it's a skin manifestation of an internal problem. Right. Now, does, does, for example, does um, hypothyroidism in, in dogs, does it manifest in their, their claws as well? Cause I know in humans it can really affect their nails. And I didn't know if it, if you would see changes in dogs claw, uh, nails as well. It can, it's not very common. I would say okay. to see it in the claws, um, or the nails. Um, and if it were there, you'd probably be seeing some clues in other places. Um, the most common one is hair not growing back as quickly if it were clipped or shaved or hair thinning out in places, um, just like not growing, you know, it's just thinning out, um, in areas where that may normally, um, not have been thin, like around the collar area where the collar rubs, but the hair's just not growing back as fast. And there are other signs that aren't skin related. They may be prone to gaining weight, even though they're not eating any more food. They may not be quite as active. If we listen to their heart, their heart might beat a little slower. Um, if you check certain lab work, their red blood cell count might be a little bit on the low side. So they might have a, what we call a mild anemia, nothing serious in terms of the red blood cell count. But there's often a, what I would describe as a constellation of signs, a bunch of things that go together to make a good picture, to make that doctor say, hey, I think this is the thyroid problem. I need to run a thyroid test. Now, which and, which makes me wonder, is there are there uh, veterinary endocrinologists? That's a great question. There are not specifically veterinary endocrinologists, but that would fall under the 
umbrella of veterinary internal medicine. Okay. Um, so that's the specialty. And then, you know, if you get to an academic institution, a university, they may have a veterinary internal medicine specialist there who limits their practice to just endocrinology or just the urinary system. But in terms of what specialists exist, internal medicine is what we have in veterinary medicine. And so anything that has to do with the guts, the stomach or the intestines or the kidney or the bladder or the endocrine glands, diabetes, there's sometimes overlap. Of course, a dog with a thyroid problem may end up coming to see me because the main problem is its skin. Right. Um, right. You know, so sometimes there's overlap within a specialist because we don't know exactly what's happening. We know what we see on the outside, but we don't know the root cause of it yet. Right. But that's in some ways the value of being both a veterinarian as well as a specialist is that you have sort of that broad perspective of being a general veterinarian. And then you also have that focused um, attention as well. And I think that that's, well, I suppose that happens in human medicine too, but sometimes I think specialists in human medicine get so focused on their specialty that they lose sight of that broader medical basis. Yeah, and I think it's- yeah. And certainly I, I practiced primary care or general veterinary medicine for two years. Um, so I was a family veterinarian for two years before I went back to do my dermatology training. But it's been over 10 years now that I've, been just doing dermatology. And so my knowledge base of all things veterinary medicine is certainly shrinking and shrinking the less that I use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that's a, a skill that veterinarians have um, much more than than human doctors. And I think it partly comes from that we as veterinarians, our patients don't talk to us. So yes. we still have to be, we have to be more of an investigative person uh, right. or as a, as a doctor have to do more investigation because we can, you know, owners might tell us this is what's happening at home. They're not acting their normal self or their appetites changed or they're having upset stomach and we can see things on examination to an extent. Um, but we definitely, I would say, have to keep a bigger picture in mind for longer. Right. It reminds me of a t-shirt I saw at OSU at the veterinary hospital. Um, my daughter at one point thought about being a vet, so we went to a, a vet day. And there is this t-shirt that says, real doctors treat more than one species. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. Um, yeah. It also reminds me of a friend of mine who, um, he's a OBGYN, and he had originally thought he wanted to go into pediatrics. But when he started working with babies, he, he looked at me and said, I thought I was a vet. I, they, they can't talk to me. Yeah. And he found that just really hard. So he went into OBGYN because his patients could actually talk to him. But he also got his baby fixed. Babies. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I would agree that if you compare how we have to work relative this. Yes. A, a pediatrician probably has has more struggles just like a veterinarian because their patients aren't as communicative. They have to rely on the parent. To right. say, well, this is what I'm seeing. So, right. right. And sometimes their patients aren't as easy to examine. They have to distract them or give them snacks the way I have to give my <laughs> patients snacks sometimes when they're being examined. So I get a lot of questions about hot spots. Can you give like the average Joe some good yeah. how to avoid them? Right. Because I yeah. think we would all agree, like best avoided. But yeah. how to agree avoid them? I I think one of the things that I see the most is that people are completely tripped up by how quickly hotspots get really bad quickly and how gross it is and how painful it is and how hard it is to treat and all that stuff. So I'm a. Well, so by nature, a hotspot in a dog is something that develops really quickly. 
Um, so it's not a rash that's been there for, you know, seven days or a few weeks or anything like that. It's something that develops quickly. The technical term for a hot spot is pyotraumatic dermatitis. Pyo meaning sort of pus or inflammation. Traumatic meaning it's self-induced. And then dermatitis is just a fancy word for inflammation of the skin. Um, but a hot spot by nature is a, you know, this very common scenario is it just happened overnight or I was, you know, I went to work and I came home and now there's this raw, bloody, wet, naked, inflamed spot that my dog created. Um, and so the hot spot itself, the underlying cause, it could be different reasons, you know, but what the question is, what made that pet lick or rub or scratch or chew that so much in that area to create so much self-trauma so quickly? And so a lot of dogs, it is an itchy sensation. So they have some sort of itchiness. Do they have, you know, they missed a dose of flea prevention and they got fleas, so they're feeling itchy. Do they have a seasonal allergy and they're allergic to weed pollens, the way a human might have ragweed allergy? Um, something that made them feel especially itchy. We can also see it in maybe a really thick, heavy coated um, dog that has an undercoat that doesn't dry as well, um, either from a bathing, like I can think of like a Newfoundland that is really, really thick coated. It might go swimming because it loves the water or it might get a bath, but if it doesn't dry out quickly enough, that damp fur can sit there. Um, or a, a, a dog whose hair coat um, is not well groomed, there's an area that gets matted and that matted fur sits really close to the skin and sort of creates an area under the skin where it can get moist and inflamed and irritated because the normal flowing hair coat can't allow air to go through. Um, but to Tina's point as well, they can be very uncomfortable and painful. Um, a lot of times the way we want to treat a hot spot in the veterinary office is to sort of remove the hair in the affected area and even in the surrounding area. One, to get an idea of how extensive it is, because sometimes it comes in and it's the size of a quarter or a half dollar piece, for those of you in the U.S., um, or maybe three centimeters diameter. Um, and then you start to shave the hair around and you realize, oh, you know, now it's, you know, 10 centimeters diameter or, you know, the size of um, a small tortilla or something. Um, because we, I, when I shave it or have um, my veterinary nurses do it, we, I want to see normal skin at the edges. I want to know how far it's going. Um, also, that helps to keep the area dry because for a hot spot, it's area that ha is like a moist pyotraumatic dermatitis or moist dermatitis. So we want to allow it to dry. So usually shaving the hair around it allows it to dry. Um, your veterinarian, when they do the exam, will decide sometimes we may add in some oral antibiotics, but sometimes we'll just use something topical to treat the area. Um, but sometimes during the shaving process, we have to give that pet some pain medicine and some sedative just to get it accomplished because it's so uncomfortable in this scenario. Um, and I never want my patient to be miserable and uncomfortable. So we don't necessarily want to hold them down just to get it over with because that's a horrible right. experience for them. And then the next time they come, even for a wellness visit, they're going to remember the bad thing that happened. Um, well, right. they were comfortable. I, I'm saying to more and more people, like for the average pet, I think a veterinary visit is a little bit like an alien abduction. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right? it's, I mean, we always take their temperature. Yeah. Every yeah. time. <laughs> like, 
my my one of my favorite vet techs, shout out to Laura, is that weights and temps are free, right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, like I don't want my weight taken every time. Stop that, yeah. <laughs> right? So so do is there a prevalence in like you talked about coat density mm-hmm. and like dogs that maybe like swimming, right? Yeah. Um, do hotspots also tend to follow like is it dogs who have allergies are more prone or dogs who um, are overweight? Like, are there things within a handler and owner's control that they can do to kind of just have a little bit of insurance, you know, built up of, hey, yeah. my dog's less likely to get a hotspot? Yeah. That's a great question. I think a few things are definitely under our control as a pet owner. I mean, if a pet has allergies, you can't control when their allergies flare up necessarily. It's just like if a person has bad seasonal allergies, you just realize, oh, this is a bad allergy day for me. What can I do to manage my symptoms? But I think that um, having um, what I would say is, is good pet coat hygiene. Now, that doesn't mean that the pet needs to be washed all the time. It's more of like, Every day I sort of know what my dog's skin and ears look like. I see what the underside of my dog's belly looks like. Or if they have a thick coat, I sort of rub my hands through their coat every day just to know what it feels like. Um, Because I think that catching little areas that are matted up sooner and then, you know, if your dog holds still, you're able to just, you know, trim that out really quickly um, to have an awareness of that. And then every few weeks, you know, doing a very thorough once over. I think that's good for um, regardless of if we're talking about dermatologic problems or other issues so that you know when you start to see a lump or a bump or something change on the skin, you know, hey, that's not, that wasn't there however long ago. Because I think in general, just like in human medicine and veterinary medicine, um, prevention or early detection are much more advantageous than trying to come at it at the other end. So to focus more back on Tina's question about hotspots. So if a pet's washed, making sure they dry thoroughly, whether that means they have a, they're on a blow dryer at a lower heat setting. We don't want it really high because that'll actually dry out the skin more. You know, just think about if you put your hands under a really hot air dryer or for those of us that live in cold climates, when our heat is running and it dries out the air, that our skin gets drier. And that can happen to dogs too. Um, or short coated dogs like a Labrador or a pointer, you know, their hair coat is going to dry pretty quickly. Um, being diligent about flea control in your area of the world or country. Um, you know, my opinion in the Midwest United States, um, because most flea preventions are flea and tick preventatives, using them year round is, um, the best plan because we don't know exactly how the climate and the the environment outside for those exposures. Cause you know, I would say that a lot of the patients that I see that come in with hotspots, And as a specialist, I don't see as much of this, but when I worked as a generalist, I saw a lot more. Um, Usually there's some sort of itchy allergy underlying reason for it, more so than a wet hair coat or I swam a lot or something like that. Um, So what are some of the common allergies that dogs would be facing? Yeah, so they're actually a lot like what us as humans experience. So there's three main categories of allergies in dogs. Um, the one that um, is by far and away the most common um, is what we call flea allergy dermatitis. So being allergic to 
flea saliva and being bit by fleas. And we can we can go off on that and talk about that for a long time too. But flea exposure, not just that a pet has fleas, because a lot of times what I'll compare to my clients is there can be dogs who have fleas and then there can be dogs who have flea allergy. Sort of like people and their reactions to poison ivy. There are people who can go hike and walk through the woods, go buy poison ivy, you know, brush by it, don't have many issues at all. And then another person, another individual can do the same hike and ha- not even touch the plant or barely touch it and have a strong reaction. So it's all the same plant, but different individual responses. And that's the same way as a dog is when they're exposed to fleas. There are some dogs who are not flea allergic. They could be loaded with fleas and they're never itchy. I still don't mm-hmm. want them to be loaded with fleas. There's lots of reasons <laughs> right. to be loaded with fleas, but they may not be itchy from it. The dogs that we see with flea allergy, we usually see very few fleas on them or none at all, but we're clued in because they're most itchy on the back half of their body, sort of where their tail connects to the rest of their body or over their hips or at the Uh top part of their back legs, sort of what if they wore pants where their pants would be. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So flea allergy is the most common cause for itchiness. Um, But to me, that one's the easiest one to manage. Um, Okay. The other big categories and what I deal with a lot more um, because flea allergy is easy to manage is either what's the fancy term is atopic dermatitis, but it's environmental allergies. More so what you classically think about are inhaled environmental allergies. So dusts and danders, house dust mites, storage mites, pollens from grasses, trees, weeds. Um, We know in dogs, they do have inhaled exposure the way a person would, but they also absorb the allergens through their skin. Um, Environmental allergies are, the skin manifestations of them are essentially what is eczema in people. Okay. Now, do they, are they absorbing stuff through their paw pads? Not the pads themselves. Okay. um, Because the pads themselves are very, very good brick walls. Dog skin, just like human skin, is essentially a brick and mortar sort of design. The skin cells being the bricks, the mortar being the stuff that holds our skin cells together. Um, And normally that brick wall will evolve over time because we humans, dogs lose their skin cells. You know, we all lose our skin cells microscopically. It exfoliates over time. Um, But what we know in people and actually in dogs with atopic dermatitis or this eczema type thing is the brick and mortar model isn't working. The mortar is crumbling. Okay. And so through that's how there's more exposure to allergens or triggers. Um, okay. And so there's a lot of research in human and veterinary medicine in terms of dermatology about making the skin a better barrier for those patients who have those skin allergies. Well, are there supplements that they could take that would enhance the skin? I mean, vitamin E comes to mind as an important part. Vitamin D is a part part for for skin. Or do you have to be really careful about vitamin supplements for your dog? So um, the most commonly prescribed supplement in relation to dog skin health would be omega fatty acids, um, which are typically what we consider Mm -hmm. fish oils. So um, the reason we're using those is because they have um, an ingredient called acoisapentaenoic acid or EPA. Pet owners, as a pet owner, we don't need to know all that information. I think what's important to know is that it has to be fish oil with EPA and DHA in it. I've had some people ask me, well, what about flaxseed oil? 
or sunflower oil or, or different, um, not sort of that cold marine um, fish oil. And it has to do with this ingredient, this EPA. Um, and we know there's evidence that it's anti-inflammatory for the skin, but it also makes the skin a better barrier. Pets who get it as a supplement, oftentimes as sort of a positive side effect, their coat's a little shinier. Um, it has anti-inflammatory effects, not just for the skin. So sometimes veterinarians will use it to help mm -hmm. with joint health. Um, and it can help with some heart rhythm disturbances. So sometimes a veterinary veterinarian may recommend it as something that is um, helpful for the heart. So they have a lot of benefits. They have very few negative side effects. Typically, the patients I've recommended it for, they tolerate it really well. But I always give the disclaimer of if it upsets their stomach or they get, you know, soft stool um, or aren't eating as well, then we don't use it or we use yeah. a lower Both dose. Both of my dogs are on it and they um, have had virtually no, well, of course, one of them's not old enough to have many, many skin problems, but Zuzu yes. has uh, yes. thrived on it. Um, it's been, and people yes. comment yeah, how all... shiny her coat is and how healthy her skin is and that kind yes. of stuff. So, yes. And there are different, different ways and doses to use um, fish oils and some, um, Pet foods have some in them, and it's all relative to what our goal is. Um, as a veterinary dermatologist, I'm often dosing at a pretty, quote-unquote, high dose, so more than would, that would just be in most pet foods, um, more than that needs to be used just to make right. the coat shiny. So there's different doses of it, depending on um, why we want to use it and what the role okay. of it is. Um, and then, you know, this could be a whole nother podcast, but just like buying a supplement for yourself, then you also have to consider um, the source of it because they're not regulated by the FDA in the United States or other um, that's why agencies. Um, just like if I were to start myself on fish Right. Oils. Well, that's why I think it's really important to talk to your veterinarian about it. Yeah. Right. In fact, that's the way I, I got my dogs on it was um, my holistic vet recommended this particular product by Veterinary Recommended Solutions. Yeah. And it's it's been really terrific yeah. for my dogs. And um, you know, and so anyway, that's worked out quite well. So um, I think we covered a lot of really interesting uh, things here on this particular podcast. And I think that people have gotten a much better idea about what it means to to uh, to to have specialties and to uh, when, when you might want to uh, take a look at at uh, having a specialist look at your dog. So thank you very much. Uh, we're going to have you back again to talk more specifically yeah. about some other things that dermatologists do. Um, so we invite everybody to come back and listen to um, Dr. Thoyce once again, and uh, we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.